This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 30th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. A presidential election, a looming Supreme Court confirmation, a global pandemic. Why worry about something like nuclear weapons across the globe? In the latest edition of Cato Unbound, Eric Gomez leads with an essay detailing what we need to know now about nuclear weapons policy in the U.S. and around the world. Cato Unbound is a a monthly product of the Cato Institute in which uh, many scholars get together and uh, debate one particular uh, question for a month. And and this month you had the you took the lead uh, on Cato's behalf. And the question is about nuclear weapons, like in in the middle of a pandemic, a presidential election, a uh, nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. uh, You almost forget that nuclear weapons are actually the thing that for the better part of the the 20th century and into the 21st century really ought to have more of our attention than it does. So what was your take with respect to your essay about what we should know today about nuclear weapons? So the prompt for that essay was, you know, what is the most important thing that uh, American citizens should know about this? And so with a prompt like that, and I have some pretty deep specialized knowledge in this, so it was kind of hard to figure out how to package it. But the way I ended up going is that there's this interesting moment in nuclear policy, where you have some very big transformative things happening, both within the United States and around the world regarding nuclear weapons. And you also have the US making a lot of decisions about what is our nuclear arsenal going to look like for the next 50 plus years. And all of this is happening kind of at the same time. And what I would hope is that given the sort of enormity of the changes, and the longevity of U.S. policy decisions that are going to be made in the next few years, that this is a really good time to talk about first-order questions instead of second-order. And I think a lot of the debate in the United States is over the second-order questions. How many missiles do we need? How many uh, warheads do we need? And, and it's very sort of like tinkering. But the first-order questions are like, and what I try to answer or get at in my paper is, what is the role of weapons in U.S. foreign policy, nuclear weapons in U.S. foreign policy, and are we asking them to do too much? Which I think is is something a bit more fundamental, and depending on how you answer that question has really big consequences for how you structure what you want to build and buy over the next several decades. And unfortunately, I don't think those types of questioning is is really happening right now. So that's why I tried to draw attention to it. Yeah, it seems like a, an obvious thing to to say that you know what the purpose of nuclear weapons are, but uh, you know one of the key purposes of nuclear weapons is so you don't have to use them, right? So as we understand the role that nuclear weapons play today, what's changed from you know the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties to today about? Uh, the role that nuclear weapons play in sort of fostering this play nice <laughs> world that that we that we hope that that's the role that they play, but but uh, what's changed? So I think that the two big things are changes in the structure of power in the world, and also uh, changes in technology, specifically 
non-nuclear technology that can be used to do things that previously you would only use a nuclear weapon for. So we'll start there because that's I, I like that a lot. Um, so in the past, in the Cold War, if you wanted to go after an enemy's nuclear forces, the only real way to do it was to use your own because you didn't have enough precision in the conventional side. You didn't have enough of that accuracy to reliably target some of these things, and you had to use a nuke. However, thanks to changes in sensing capabilities, precision strike, that more and more countries have these types of weapons, we can do some of those things with conventional systems now. The United States could target a Russian or a Chinese nuclear site, not all of them, but some of them, with a conventional weapon that previously you'd have to cross the nuclear threshold to do. And that changes how conflict works, right? If we can credibly hold a country's nuclear forces at risk, then if they have a, a nuclear doctrine of saying, all right, you know, we'll wait for a first strike before we reply, maybe they can't have that luxury anymore. And the United States can do this in a way to other countries that they can't really do to us because we're stationed around the world and we have, you know, a large military presence in Europe and in Asia right on the doorsteps of the great powers. So that's one area where things get a little dicey and things have changed. The other area is that you have a situation in the world where the United States sees a lot more threats. And those threats are coming from great powers again. So you had, you know, US-Soviet competition in the Cold War, um, then Soviet Union collapses, a long period of US dominance, and now US dominance is going away. And I think there's a natural tendency to say, oh no, if that dominance is going away, then we need to sort of revert our nuclear thinking and, and think about how nuclear weapons can apply to more problems and use them as this kind of almost like an equalizer of sorts uh, or, or some way to hold on to that position. And I think there's a lot of danger there because of this other stuff I talked about earlier about new technology changing the way that conventional conflict could activate nuclear responses. And it's a pretty, I know that I, I think that's all I'll say about it here um, and encourage the listeners to like read the essay and read some other stuff that's, that's come out about this topic. But it's, it's a world where the ability of nuclear weapons to actually prevent nuclear first strikes or, or strikes that um, could affect nuclear targets is kind of eroding. And if the United States wants to avoid it, then adding more nukes like the Trump administration wants to do might not actually prevent it because the, the pressure point isn't the nuclear weapons themselves. It's this other technology that's coming out and countries are trying to figure out what do I do with it? So there is what is known by academics based on years of research of the role that nuclear weapons have played. How quickly does that kind of knowledge uh, filter to people who are actually in charge of making these kinds of decisions and structuring negotiations, discussions, treaties with uh, other countries? Or does it does that actually get to them? Is there is the pu public policy ultimately based on something different? I really, really hope that some of it gets to them. But this is a question that has bedeviled sort of academic analysts for a very long time. The United States, I don't think, is very comfortable with the idea 
of being deterred. We like the term deterrence as it applies for us preventing anyone else from doing anything bad. But when it comes to us not being able to have absolute freedom of action, especially in the military space, we don't like that. And so you can say, you can create these academic theories about how uh, like the condition of mutual assured destruction can be stabilizing because both sides are afraid to do a nuclear thing for fear of dying themselves. And that's sort of good at, a, at an intellectual level. But if you tell that to a president, they're probably going to be like, well, I don't want to be in this, in this situation, right? And I want to try and do whatever I can to get the advantage I want. Um, there is, I think there is some evidence that when the Cold War ended, the, the administrations that came after that, the Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama, all of them did things to try and reduce the size of the U.S. arsenal, the, the nuclear arsenal, um, and also try and decrease the role that nuclear weapons played in U.S. foreign policy because, because they saw that change in the world, right? The Soviet Union was no longer a huge threat. Russia was more of a cooperative partner uh, to reduce nuclear danger because they had all this like loose material after the Soviet Union collapsed, and there was a lot of good cooperation. And that was mirroring a lot of, I think, academic sort of thinking at the time. But it's a very difficult business to actually tell what gets through to them and what doesn't. Broadly speaking, uh, if you've watched the the last two decades of uh, reactions to countries that are close to getting nuclear weapons or countries that are seeking nuclear weapons or countries that have achieved uh, a nuclear weapon and a delivery system. If you're a smaller country that is maybe not very popular, maybe you're a tyrant, uh, and you see what's happened to countries like Libya and Iran that have been seeking nuclear weapons and were uh, ultimately talked out of it, the lesson you might take is, well, I just better get some nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, they're the the ultimate guarantor of regime survival. And I think that if, if the U.S. wants to deal with this problem, one of the things that we're going to have to do is a bit of soul searching about what role has our foreign policy played in encouraging proliferation. So often the U.S. says like, oh, you know, our foreign policy prevents countries from seeking the bomb um, because we can have this big, you know, security umbrella over so many people. And that's true for allies. Like we've been, do we've been doing a great job of preventing uh, democratic allies from getting nuclear weapons. Haven't been doing a great job of preventing, <laughs> you know, countries like Pakistan or North Korea <laughs> or Iran from getting them. And the reason we've been good at getting allies not to have nuclear weapons is like, we got you. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, we, you know, we use the alliance system as a tool for nonproliferation, which I think is, is fine and good, right? I, I think the, you know, the fewer nuclear weapons in the world, the better. Um, but there's also the, the flip side of that coin is, especially after 9 11, when the US is, goes on this kind of axis of evil bent and starts toppling or trying to topple countries we don't like left and right, then nuclear weapons look attractive. And it's also very hard for us. I think the, the big tragedy of the Iran case is that the threat of conflict in the early 2000s, the Obama administration gets to the Iran nuclear deal, which even though it doesn't solve every single problem the U.S. has with Iran, it solves the nuclear one. 
And then Trump leaves it. And now I think that's going to raise a lot of questions like for the North Koreans. If the North Koreans wanted to have a deal with the United States over their nukes, what's to stop a future president from saying, eh, I don't really like that anymore. And and so I think that the Trump administration's decision to try and leave the Iran deal and kill it is going to be a huge step backward for U.S. efforts to prevent other countries from getting nuclear weapons. Uh, but you also see... In the Bush administration, through the early part of the Obama administration, this incredible work being done to convince Libya not to continue its pursuit of nuclear weapons. And then you see that regime toppled, due in no small part to the actions of the U.S. military under a different administration. Yeah. And this is what the North Koreans talk about when they worry about the so-called Libya model, right? It's uh, it's not the model of, hey, surrender your nukes and everything will be fine. It's the model of, yeah, but wait a little bit, right? Surrender your nukes. And then uh, when when the U.S. sees an opportunity, they'll, they'll destroy your regime. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think part of this is just, and, and part of this might change as, as this power shift in, international, in the international world occurs and the U.S. starts caring more about, you know, what the Chinese are doing. One thing about the Cold War, I think that was somewhat positive, is that it it sort of whetted the U.S. appetite for for certain stupid things. We did plenty of stupid things in the Cold War, but there were ways that which if we did a stupid thing in the wrong place, it could really come back to hurt us. And I think that limiting factor hasn't really been in play since the Soviet Union went away, but it might start coming back with China. And so even though I think the this like competitive turn towards China might have its own problems. One potential silver lining of it is the the US ability to kind of do stupid stuff around the world and sort of get off with the cost or get off with the costs relatively scot-free might not be there anymore. And it might enforce some smarter decision making in Washington. But that remains to be seen. Eric Gomez directs defense policy studies at the Cato Institute and is the author of the lead essay in this month's Cato Unbound. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.